I mean, I think, it, you know, at the end of the day, whether we call something uh, crypto or NFT, the question is, what is the functional economic characteristics that it has, right? And a lot of these, you know, purportedly novel instruments are actually just recreating things that have always existed. Welcome to the Next Gen Banker podcast, where we explore what's next in banking and talk with the innovators responsible for creating positive change in the financial sector. I am your host, David Reiling, and I'm very excited uh, to welcome uh, Jason McCullough. And uh, Jason, thank you for being on the Next Gen Banker podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to uh, join you. First, first podcast recording of the new year for me. Yeah, well, fantastic. And Jason, just one thing for our audience before we get started, uh, at the end of each Next Gen Banker podcast, uh, we have a musical feature. And so it's an artist uh, from anywhere from around the world, so representing a wide range of genres. So audience, check it out. Uh, start a new year and a new list of artists. Now, Jason, a little background on you as we get rolling here. Uh, you're the managing director of 312 Global Strategies BV, a financial services consulting firm. You're the publisher of FinTech Business Weekly, a newsletter about the latest happenings in the FinTech world, which I can't wait to talk to you about. And you have more than a decade's experience in digital marketing, financial services uh, for organizations across the US and Europe. So great to have you on the podcast today. And maybe just to kind of kick us off, I'm always curious as to how did you end up in fintech, in particular in the Netherlands? And here's our, our geo quiz for the day for people. Where is Utrecht in the Netherlands would be the question. And so uh, if you know the answer, just uh, say it out loud, audience, to yourself. So it's a very cool town. If you haven't been there, I, I recommend going there. So uh, how did you get where you are after you, your career in the U.S. and, and in London and, and get into fintech? Yeah, I mean, I... I always like to joke that I at least think of myself as one of the least likely people to have ended up in in financial services and you know working from you know small dollar lending to you know building the consumer banking franchise at Goldman Sachs. Not really what I thought my career path was going to be when you know when I was in college. I studied political science in in undergrad and attended University of Chicago to study sociology absolutely nothing to do with finance or banking or frankly even marketing which was kind of my entry path um you know after i attended grad school i decided i had you know my entire life to work in offices went off served as a peace corps volunteer in the uh, very tough assignment of uh, saint lucia in the uh, caribbean which was you know, very rough um, and when I came back, I was recruited by a company in Chicago called Enova, which is kind of fintech before fintech was a popular term. Uh, I mean, they started doing online lending in the small dollar space, I want to say, in like 2003, 2004. So, I mean, far before, you know, the kind of lending clubs and prospers that came later. You know, and I was recruited because I had a digital marketing skill set. So, I mean, at this point, and I'm dating myself, but I mean, the sort of cutting edge digital marketing was like, oh, do you know how to run Google ads? You know, do you understand how to manage an affiliate program and do the sort of tracking and attribution and, and computing of, you know, CPA cost per acquisition and, and sort of run this stuff? And, and there were no, as far as I'm aware, you know, college programs that taught this stuff back then. So, I mean, I was sort of 
self-taught because I was a nerd and liked it and was recruited to this job and had no background in financial services, but needed health insurance. And so that was sort of where I started. And that was, you know, 13, 14 years ago now, and went from Innova to LendUp, which was a startup out in San Francisco, and then Goldman, which, you know, if you're interested, I'm sure we can talk about that. Um, you know, moved out to London, where I worked for a private student lending startup, and, and ultimately, you know, ended up here in beautiful Utrecht, although cold, uh, dark, and a bit rainy this time of year. Um, more for personal reasons, uh, you know, my better half moved here for for work, and and I joined, and I've been here for about a bit over three years now. Wow, fantastic! And what a great journey. Um, I, I talk to college students and graduate students fairly regularly, and they're always like, oh, you know, they're always so stressed about not knowing what they're going to do, or they're so certain about their future on the other end of the spectrum. And I'm like, take it easy. The world is going to throw you some things and you're going to find your journey to wherever that is. And you know what? You, you can change it if you want to. So it's always fascinating to me how people uh, start one place, end up in another and and find their mm-hmm find their space ultimately. So that's cool. So now in in 2020, you started a newsletter called uh, FinTech Business Weekly. And I am going to throw out a shameless plug here because I am an, I haven't subscribed yet, as I told you, but I read your, your newsletters from 22. And I'm like, yeah, this is so in my repertoire of what I need to put in terms of reading for 23. Um, and so how did you think about starting the, the newsletter and what audience are you trying to reach here? So, um, I mean, to be honest, it, it kind of started as a pandemic hobby. Now, uh, thankfully, for the most part, the p- pandemic is in the rearview mirror for most of us, at least like the sort of worst component of it. Um, but think back to whatever it was, October 2020, you know, pre-vaccine here in the Netherlands, pretty much everything was closed, you know, with the exception of, you know, grocery store, pharmacy, et cetera. Um, and, you know, the winter is cold, dark, and rainy. So, you know, I couldn't spend all of my time binge watching Netflix. I was like, I need to do something that feels a little bit more productive. I mean, I've been in the space for a long time at that point. I've always enjoyed sort of like writing and talking to people about what's happening. And I thought, hey, you know, why not do this in a bit more of a structured way you know, and, and put myself out there by sharing it. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure people will disagree or I'll make mistakes. And, and, and you know, that's part of sort of learning and writing and publishing in, in public. Uh, so that was sort of like the, my thought process at, at that time. You know, part of what I wanted to contribute, and I'm a bit of a news junkie, I found, and frankly, I think this is still true, you know, in the sort of mainstream business press, so your Wall Street Journal and, and Bloomberg kind of publications, which are fantastic, but they tend to only be able to cover the biggest stories, right? So, I mean, if you're Stripe or with what's happening these days, you know, maybe Coinbase and, and some of the drama there, um, you know, it's going to be covered in mainstream business press. Uh, but some of those earlier, you know, earlier stage companies or smaller companies, you know, are just, you know, beyond the scope of coverage of, of those types of publications. And the reporters, not that they don't do a fantastic job, but they don't typically have experience 
in industry, with some notable exceptions, of course. I mean, Matt Levine at, at Money Stuff is far, far smarter and more experienced than I could ever hope to be. But generally, you know, if you're reading some write up about, you know, oh, what's happening at in this weird new buy now pay later thing, or like what's happening with, uh, you know, Zelle and fraud in Zelle, typically the people who are writing those pieces, they're reporters. They're not coming from industry, and so they're going to cover it with sort of a different lens and a different level of detail. Um, you know, on the flip side, some publications that are more focused on sort of startups, I found tended to lack a certain critical lens, right? So almost serving more as a press release amplification machine um, which is great. I mean, we need to know, you know, who raised money, who launched new products that's helpful, but didn't necessarily apply a critical lens of, is this a sustainable business model? Does this valuation make sense, et cetera? And so looking at these two sort of polls, I'm like, okay, I can go more sort of more in depth and bring a, a body of knowledge that, you know, maybe a typical uh, print publication reporter doesn't have, uh, but also be more critical or analytical than maybe some of the more sort of cheerleader type publications typically are. Yeah, I have to tell you, you the way that you just described that um, is exactly how I ingested it. And from my lens, you were able to you kind of you're able to look at a holistic kind of lens of this industry. And I would agree. I, I see some of the startup stuff as a little too much cheerleady uh, in terms of how they describe fintechs and the revolution there. And then um, I rarely hear that there's enough in-depth in terms of, hey, the perspective of a regulator or a compliance or the business model itself of asking those big questions. Hey, when do you go from actually number of members or users to actual revenue models and, and what that means? And so that that lens is, I to me, really refreshing. And I have to tell you that the article that or the newsletter that is still very fresh in my mind, and I'm really curious to ask you about, in the beginning of 22, you made six predictions uh, in your fintech newsletter, anywhere from crypto to NFTs to the metaverse and more. First of all, let's just pause there for a second. Is there any reflections that you want to give on those predictions uh, from 2022 and then maybe roll us into 23 a little? Uh, and give us a tease as to what 23 might look like. Yeah, I, I mean, clearly I was rereading those and sort of like grading myself. Um, uh, I was I was pretty happy <laughs> with how accurate I was. You are fantastic, um, in my opinion. No, not surprised. I mean, in, in retrospect, you know, it. if you think of, you know, Jan 2022 or, or the end of 2021, you know, I think that you had a small minority of people who were looking at what was happening, particularly in, you know, sort of crypto NFT space and saying, you know, this is a completely unsustainable bubble. Um, and I guess after, you know, whatever, 12, 13 years in sort of in finance and in startups, um, I've become a little bit skeptical right like we've seen we've seen this story before right. um i mean particularly when you're talking about you know some of the stuff we mentioned earlier of bringing that more critical lens and not that these aren't weren't aren't great companies 
But if you think back to like Lending Club and On Deck when they IPO'd, the story was, you know, these are technology companies, they're not finance companies. You know, they both IPO'd, I want to say around eight-ish billion market cap, something in that neighborhood. You know, On Deck sold for peanuts, 90 million, actually to my old employer, Enova. And, you know, Lending Club, I think, has done a great job of uh, basically becoming a completely different business, right? It's no longer a peer-to-peer lender. It, it's a bank. Right. Um, so very different than, than sort of, you know, where they started off. So, I mean, I, I have, a, I think, a healthy level of skepticism. And, and you know, seeing all of the mania, I think, is really the, the appropriate word around crypto, around NFTs. It's like this, this is not real. I mean, this is not real, not sustainable. These valuations are not based on anything other than hype and hope. Um, and I actually, I think Todd Baker uh, has done an excellent job with a couple of pieces he's written recently describing, and I agree with probably 95% of, of his position and analysis, you know, arguing that a lot of what is in crypto is, you know, finance without any, without any purpose without any real economic purpose underneath it you know it's, it's purely essentially sort of speculative gambling and so you know it's not surprising that that bubble would pop you know eventually yeah i would agree it 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 certainly needed to find its way and i think still does from that economic um where's the value add in embedded in it um other outside of just its the specular nature of its quote unquote value and so really interesting. And as much as I've tried in terms of the NFT world to really get my head around it and, and dive in, I still felt that there was a cousin there that I just seemed to like, can it really sustain the value? I can see some use cases that really could have some applicability and in, in access and value. But boy, for the whole, I just still was very skeptical. And so interested to see now it's still obviously a uh, $20 billion ish type of uh, space. So it's not small by any means, but it's not, uh, it'll be interesting to see how it evolves from here. And particularly, can I get your take on what do you think NFTs and, and bank regulators or securities regulators would ultimately say about the oversight of it all? I mean, that's, that's interesting. And I, I, I you know, don't want to position myself as an expert on securities regulation, but I mean, I don't know. We, we, I think most of us in the space probably like read the Howey test and, and sort of what uh, sort of lens that regulators or courts apply when when looking at something and saying, you know, is this a security? And I mean, all in the most abstract, right? All an NFT is is the representation of some object on the blockchain. You know, most of what we saw last year was that that representation was essentially pointing to a JPEG, right? It's pointing to a picture, right? So if you are buying and selling that NFT, what you're doing is buying and selling representation that you, you know, quote unquote, own this JPEG of a, you know, a board ape or what have you. Um, I mean, I think we've seen some other instances, you know, both in the sort of crypto space, but also in NFT where, it starts to look like something that could be a security, right? If it's like, okay, I was actually listening to a podcast during my holiday travels about, you know, a project that was 
selling NFTs that was like fractional, wanted to be fractional ownership in an island that they were a private island that they were going to buy. And owning that NFT would give you, you know, certain rights to live there and participate in the community and et cetera. Um, so I mean, I think, you know, at the end of the day, whether we call something uh, crypto or NFT, the question is, what is the functional economic characteristics that it has, right? And a lot of these, you know, purportedly novel instruments are actually just recreating things that have always existed, right? Is it functioning as an equity investment? Is it functioning as a debt investment? Um, and so on, or fractional ownership. Um, you know, so just calling something an NFT doesn't, uh, in my mind, change the underlying economic functionality. It's, it's maybe it's a different way of viewing or holding or transacting. But at the end of the day, if the NFT is functioning like an ownership stake, like an equity stake, it's probably a security. And, you know, I think um, probably most of the people listening to this have been around long enough to realize that, you know, particularly in the American regulatory regime, there doesn't tend to be uh, a strong response until there's a crisis. Uh, I mean, we certainly saw that in, you know, 2007, 2008. Um, you know, I feel like we're probably seeing that right now with crypto, although how that response plays out definitely seems a bit uncertain based on, you know, who has jurisdiction, SEC, CFTC, how do banking regulators respond? Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that you're going to see, um, you know, scrutiny, perhaps enforcement actions, perhaps new rulemaking, you know, based on the extreme excesses that unfolded in 2001, 2002. So Jason, I want to talk about your background a little bit in the Peace Corps, but I'm going to put that on pause for just one second. I just have two kind of speed questions for you relative to where you've been recently and, and just kind of recent events. Uh, you were a speaker recently in Saudi Arabia at a, at a fintech conference. Gosh, what's going on in Saudi Arabia in terms of fintech? It's it's a space that is unknown to me. So I just, again, I'm using that term curiosity again, but I'm, I'm curious as to what's happening there. I mean, it's it was also mostly unknown to me, for, <laughs> to, to be fully transparent. Uh, you know, I was asked to go in, and speak on a panel, you know, specifically about open banking. Um, I mean, I think the thing that was the most surprising to me was how similar it was. You know, the, the conversations I was having and, you know, most of the attendees were from Saudi Arabia or, you know, sort of elsewhere in the Middle East, North Africa region, you know, also maybe like Pakistan, India. Um, but the kinds of topics, the kinds of conversations were probably 95% the same as what I would have at Money 2020. You know, is how can we use open banking to, you know, better underwrite lending to consumers? How can we use open banking to you know, better help people save or manage retirement? Uh, so a lot of the same kinds of questions, topics, even a lot of the same kinds of products. I mean, there was a, a startup pitch competition and you know, one of them that I remember specifically was basically like an earned wage access style product. Um, you know, one was essentially a buy now pay later style product. So, you know, uh, going into that experience, you know, frankly, not knowing a ton about 
uh, the financial services ecosystem in Saudi, I expected it to be more different than it was. You know, I think the the one argument to the contrary was you know, there was a, a company I was speaking with that was had been going through the process of obtaining um, an e-money license, which that category doesn't quite exist in the U.S. But I mean, essentially, what you need to operate a neo bank um, in a lot of a lot of other countries. And the process had taken them, you know, something like two plus years. And we're not even talking about holding customer deposits. I mean, it's more like a, a payment facilitator uh, type uh, entity. Mm-hmm. And so that, when I think of like, you know, the relative ease of launching consumer fintech companies in the U.S., in the U.K., whether it's through partnerships, which are very prevalent in the U.S. ecosystem, or through obtaining a sort of de novo license that's something other than a bank license you know some sort of third category um that that part did surprise me a bit okay interesting and then moving on to the next question would be uh banking as a service and it's it's evolution where are we today in your mind in terms of the the banking as, as a service it it certainly all the rage development vc money pouring into it um seems to be a little more injection of the regulatory world in, in terms of its inquiry, given Blue Ridge and so forth. Uh, just your thoughts on on banking as a service. Where are we? I mean, I think that there are a couple uh, of different intersecting trends impacting that, that, that frankly are sometimes pushing in different directions. One is sort of the overall VC and fintech funding environment, right? So if we think about what is fueling demand for banking as a service, you know, whether that's sort of directly with a partner bank or through one of the, I use the term middleware, one, one of these middleware platforms, you know, the demand for that is being fueled by, you know, fintechs, whether that's serving a consumer base or, you know, business SMB or business base, fintechs forming that are marketing to these, these constituencies, you know, we've seen, you know, a very notable reversal in the funding climate. I mean, in my opinion, like healthy and overdue. Uh, But if you look at, you know, the sort of number of deals and amount of funds raised on a month by month basis, you know, dropped precipitously since, you know, the beginning of 2022, right? So uh, I think it's reasonable to assume if there's less VC money flowing into the fintech space, you're presumably going to have lower demand for these sort of banking as a service relationship. So that's part one. Part two, the kinds of community banks or smaller banks that have um, pursued these business models, that need isn't going away, right? Uh, I mean, if you look at the you know the number of licensed banks in the United States, it's just like wildly out of whack with what is sort of really needed to serve the population, right? And I think about this as historic relic of you know one you know banking pre pre internet. And then too, I mean, there's like a regulatory component there as well with like interstate banking regulation going back to like the 80s. But I mean, the U.S. banking market has been on a long path of consolidation. And, you know, despite antitrust inquiry or 
executive orders about fostering competition, I don't see those as reversing the long-term long trend towards consolidation. So if you are one of these smaller banks, I mean, particularly the sub 10 billion, you know, Durban exempt banks, and right. you're looking around saying like, oh gosh, like we need to, you know, we need to keep growing because that's what, I, you know, if you're publicly traded or privately held, whatever, like that's what our shareholders are demanding of us. If we don't grow, we're going to die. But hey, you know, we're in Tennessee or we're in, you know, uh, Utah, and maybe we don't necessarily have the resources and the technical talent to do this ourselves. Banking as a service, you know, despite the headwinds and kerfuffle of the past year, still presents a appealing and frankly logical path to expansion. If it's like, okay, what do I need? I need to be able to source deposits. I need to be able to deploy those as loans. Uh, and then ideally also generate some sort of fee uh, fee revenue that, that you know, it's not tied to those two pieces. Um, and the kinds of fintech relationships that are uh, enabled by banking as a service, I think are still a really appealing way to do that. I mean, I think about it as the disaggregation of the banking value chain, right? I mean, much as we've seen in the mortgage space historically, where, you know, you all of these things that maybe used to happen at your community bank from, you know, underwriting origination, servicing collections, et cetera, are now split over a huge variety of players. Or, you know, I mean, even at a totally different uh, industry, you've seen it in telco as well, sort of like cable mobile phones, yeah. where they used to provide a lot of the functionality. Now they're sort of the dumb pipes and there are other players that sit on top of it. And so I think that is what is, you know, unfolding in the banking space, you know, is JP Morgan Chase going to go away? Is Citibank going to go away? No. But what about, you know, basically the other 3,900 banks that aren't, you know, top 100 banks? There's going to be consolidation, and then there's going to be the ones that find uh, a path to sort of capture that consolidating market share. And I think banking as a service will still play a key role in it. Yeah. We'll see the evolution. Maybe taking a, a slightly different direction. And so uh, you mentioned earlier too, you're a volunteer in the Peace Corps in one of my favorite places in the world, St. Lucia. But you've also uh, you've supported uh, nonprofits through your subscription, through your newsletter. Um, you've been a mentor in finance accelerators. Kind of the core component I'm I'm trying to go for here is, do you think in in fintech? Can fintech be used for good? Is there a way to harness the technology, the usability, et cetera, to really provide something then just the value to the shareholder and so forth, more than that economic return? Is is there some other value there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, in particularly in sort of the American or even say yeah. Western context, I think one of the, the challenges is um, this is a very like cliche thing to say, but like incentives tend to be unaligned, misaligned, misaligned. <laughs> so if you, I mean, if you look at, you know, um, what, what is the business of banking, you know, yeah. holding money, moving money, you know, uh, storing money, growing money, et cetera, the companies, whether they're banks or, or non-banks, fintechs, you know, tend to drive revenue by encouraging activities that are not always helpful for the end consumer. Um, and I'll, you know, pick on neobanks as an example. You know, I think that companies like Chime and Vero in aggregate have been good for consumers in the sense that, 
you know, those, the segment it's, those companies serve tended to be very poorly served by your money center banks like Chase, Wells Fargo, et cetera. They're getting NSF, overdraft, min balance fees. So if you're living paycheck to paycheck, have a couple hundred bucks in your account, you know, you're not having a great experience at those kind of banks. And, and Chime, Vero, et cetera, recognize that. And they're like, hey, you know, we can build a better product for these consumers. Now, like Asterix, uh, it's unclear if this is an economically viable business model. Uh, time will tell on that one. But to your point about, you know, can it be used for, for good? I think the challenge is the business model in that space is interchange. And so if I'm running a neobank in the US and I'm a product manager, you know, growth manager or whatever, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to get my consumers to, I mean, one, move money on the platform. So is it their tax refund check, their stimulus check, their, you know, their direct deposit, uh, so that they can then spend it with my debit card. Uh, in, in business models that are centered around savings and to somewhat of a lesser extent investment, you know, tend to be less attractive and particularly less, I mean, I mean, less profitable, so less attractive, particularly to um, the kinds of investors that are, that are funding these companies. If you're a VC investor, you know, you're not looking for like a nice small business. You want, you know, a unicorn, 1 billion, 10 billion, 50 right. billion uh, valuation company. Uh, and so the venture dollars tend to flow to, you know, companies that are going to be interested in maximizing profitability. Now, I think there are plenty of places within fintech that have the opportunity to do, you know, quote unquote, good things. Um, the kind of buzzwords you tend to hear are around expanding access and inclusion, um, which I think is, is a good way to think about it. And I mean, to go back to, you know, the open banking example, um, you know, the uh, technology like technology infrastructure layer, and then, um, you know, analytics layer to enable underwriting based on ca cash flow data is not something that really existed 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and I mean, I actually have moved to countries, specifically the UK, where I showed up and they're like, oh, well, you want a cell phone? Like, you can't, you can't have a regular contract because like you don't exist. You have no, you know, you have no record on the credit bureaus right. in the country. And so the idea that like, hey, you know, something like, uh, you know, the big three bureaus and the FICO have worked well for most people. So, so 680 plus with a regular job, you know, single full-time job, but the, it hasn't worked well for everybody. And that's always been true. Right. And so are there, you know, ways that we can use the, you know, the capabilities and tools that have been built and are being built to serve constituencies to serve segments that have, have, you know, historically not been as well served. And I, I certainly think that, that, that is happening and will continue to happen. Yeah, I agree. And that that's very well said. Um, so with that in mind, maybe, but, uh, given your, your perspective, and this is, we ask every guest, uh, of the next gen banker podcast, <laughs> this question, what, what do you think the next gen banker looks like? So I was thinking about this, uh, you know, as we were getting ready for this, and it was the question I was struggling with. I mean, I guess the the best, simplest answer I could come up with to that is, 
banking today, and I think this is actually true of, of pretty much kind of any sort of like white collar knowledge worker job, you know, has two key components that I think a lot of us, you know, didn't didn't study in school, maybe didn't even have the chance to study in school. And that is, you know, technology and data. And I realize like both of those are somewhat obnoxious, you know, buzzwords and, and slightly reductive. Um, but I mean, if I think about, you know, any of the the roles I had, and, and I typically worked in a marketing capacity, right? So I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't a software engineer, but even in in the roles I had, I had to be able to meet with software product managers, software engineers, QA, and, you know, credibly understand what they were saying and, and be able to make my case in order to execute what I needed to get done. And I think, you know, that extends to data as well, right? So, I mean, okay, you know, I had some basic statistics classes in, in university, um, but I did not learn SQL, right? And if I think of, you know, any of, frankly, any of the jobs I had in financial services, you know, not just being able to understand how to, you know, work with data in Excel, but actually how to pull the data, pull the information you need in order to then do that analysis. Uh, so I'm, I'm sure things have changed since, you know, since I was in school. Um, but when I think of sort of the two, two things, um, that really are critical, no matter what role you're in, right? I, whether you're, uh, you know, a credit risk modeler, a marketer, um, even a even a brand marketer. I was more of a performance marketer. Um, you know, understanding how do I access the data I need to answer the questions I have? You know, run experiments um, to determine what is effective, what is not effective, and how do I interface with you know, quote unquote, the technical people, the product managers, the software engineers, QA, um, like those in my mind are now table stakes in a way that I imagine they probably weren't, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, definitely. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, from my seat as a CEO and owner of a bank, that technology and data requirement, if you will, finds its way from the boardroom to the teller line and then obviously into the IT department and in every facet of the, of the business. And so it is so critical in, in today. And it's not just uh, people always think of this, or the ones that I, the bankers I run into as a burden. It's really a huge opportunity to be to get that capability and that knowledge to be able to use it, um, use it for uh, good and evil, if you will. But the fact is, is it, it is critical relative to uh to banking uh now and in the future well jason i really appreciate your time today I, again i really enjoyed your newsletter i'm really looking forward to uh 2023 and and all that it brings in terms of your newsletter as well as fintech no doubt it'll be an exciting ride hey thanks for being a guest on the next gen banker podcast thank you so much if you uh find yourself in utrecht you know where to find me sounds great and uh thanks for listening to the next gen banker podcast and we will see you soon for this episode's musical feature, we're showcasing Pete Stewart. Pete is a Seattle-born Nashville transplant who writes eclectic, acoustic-based songs ranging from the intimate to the anthemic. Here is Under Moonlight Pale by Pete Stewart.
rising from the ashes deep inside Luminary, nothing left to hide Pete's music on Spotify. If you would like your music featured on the Next Gen Banker podcast, just email David at nextgen-banker.com with a link to your music and website. Thanks for listening to the Next Gen Banker podcast. We'll see you next time.